Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, our text this evening will be verses 1 to 10. This is a a beloved passage, a beloved text, one that is often read, often referred to, often reflected upon and pondered, and it is needful that we do that. You know, one thing... <clears throat> that is just uh, amazing is how detailed that the Lord uh, puts within how much detail the Lord puts within his word when it comes to our salvation and what the Lord has done on behalf of his people and the need that we have often to be reminded of those truths and we do need to be reminded of them we do need to reflect upon them you know there's Countless movies where somebody inevitably will say in the movie, you know, you need to remember where you come from. Or somebody will say something to the effect of, I know where I came from. And that is a very true statement in regards to the Christian. Because we often forget where we have come from. We often forget what we've been delivered from. We forget the love that God has shown to us and the kindness that God has shown and the grace that God has shown to us. Sometimes we often forget. Other things can so distract us. Distractions do their very job. They keep us from reflecting and remembering the things of God and keep us so focused on what all else is going on. But have you thought even recently and considered and even spent time pondering those very things of Do you remember the previous state in which you were in? Do you remember the life that you previously had? The life that you lived beforehand? The sin in which you indulged in? The darkness in which you were in? Do you think of that? Do you consider that? What would your life have been if not for the grace of God? Where would your life have been had not God intervened with His great love and His great kindness to you? Where would you be? You would be having a life of no purpose, an empty life, a meaningless life, a life of darkness. That's what we read of in Scripture. And in fact, Paul says those very things in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 17. He says... So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This is the life in which we once led. 
the, the life that we lived, until God invaded our lives and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and the domain of darkness, the sphere of darkness, and transferred us to the glorious kingdom of His Son in which righteousness dwells and holiness dwells. The Lord was pleased to deliver you in Christ. He delighted in doing this very thing on, on behalf of His Son to whom He had given you to Him. And so therefore, He delights in, in, in bringing you up. He delights in lavishing on you the blessings of His grace and the riches of His mercy. And this passage here details those things for us. Those de- those. Those wonderful truths, those, those great blessings that he elaborated on in the first chapter, he, he goes into some detail now in chapter 2. Detailing for us the kindness of God toward us and the grace of God for such undeserving people as we are and the love of God for those whom Christ died for. We find this in this passage. And so as we enter into this sacred text, to this sacred territory, let us indeed be reflecting upon what God has indeed done for you personally. Not one of us here, if you are in Christ, has ever been abandoned and left or have been ever unloved by God since you have been in Christ. And He has lavished on you the great blessings of His salvation. So let's enter into this text very humbly and allow this passage to produce in us such great joy for our our Lord and all that He's done for us. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Let us hear what the inspired Word says. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not, of, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we humbly come into Your presence. We ask, Father, that You would guide our thoughts. And that the Spirit of God would bring this text to, to an even greater realization in our, in our lives. That we could dwell upon and reflect upon what great grace you have shown us in Christ Jesus. And what great love that you have bestowed upon us. Even though we were so undeserving. 
How magnificent is your love and your grace. How unfathomable the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, do a mighty work within us and bring, bring us back to that understanding. Bring us back to the joy of our salvation. The joy of knowing you. Produce in us all that you desire. And bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Again, this is a passage of Scripture that is truly beloved by many. I couldn't tell you how many times that, that, it, that I often go to this passage of Scripture, often reflect upon it, often quoting it in some way because of, of how amazing this, this passage is can, with the truths that are contained here. The Apostle Paul, when he opens up this letter to the church of of Ephesus, he begins not by necessarily introducing himself, which he does, but he moves right to what he wants to talk to them about. In that very first chapter, he he begins with, with just lavishing out all the spiritual blessings that the people of God have received in Christ. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he goes into a number of things and he's just blurting it out. As we've talked about before, verses 3 all the way to 14 is one long continuous sentence. There are no breaks. There are in our English translations, but not in the Greek text. And again, it's just him blurting it out. He's writing and he's one right after the other, one right after the other. These are all the things that we have received in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing, not one of them is lacking for any believer. The election of God before the foundation of the world. The sanctification that we have received to be holy and blameless. The adoption that we have received. The redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. He made known to us the mystery of His will. He made known to us the mystery of the things that were hidden previously. He has, he has exposed them. He has manifested them through the coming of Christ and giving us the mind of Christ that we can now read the Scripture and understand the Scripture and that our, our thoughts and our, our understanding of God is only growing with every time we turn a page. His great prayer for the people of God. Even after all of these great things, after being uh, ex- expressing the, the great joy that we have and the great privilege we have of being sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. He's given as the down payment. God is now dwelling in you in the fullness, the fullest sense in which God dwells in people. He dwells in you. In his prayer for them, he begins in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That is a prayer for us all. Pray that the eyes of your heart, the seed of your emotions, would be enlightened to understand the reality of things. The reality of the blessing of salvation. 
But here's what he goes into. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is his prayer. This is the prayer not just for the church of Ephesus, because this letter was supposed to be circulated to the other churches as well. This is the prayer that Paul has for all the churches. This is the prayer of, of, of us, for us, to be enlightened to know these things. Because there are many dark things in this world. There are many things in this world that hinder us and blind us and cause us no longer to look up but to look down. And he says, I pray that the, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know these things, that the light would come on and you would see it, that you would see the great blessings that God has lavished on you. And so then he goes into detail so that the people understand to an even greater extent. And he begins by expressing where we were, where have we come from? What was the life that we lived beforehand? And there's no greater language that he could use to express it than to express it in, this, in the language of being dead. And you were dead. Spiritually dead, he says. This is the idea. Separated from God, you're unresponsive to the things of God. You cannot accept the things of God. You're walking in the futility of your mind. You're darkened in your understanding. All you have is ignorance. You're unresponsive to anything. When it comes to the greatness of God and the blessings of God and the salvation of God, you're just as unresponsive as a physically dead person is unresponsive. We've all been to funerals. We've all had people that have, that have died that we've been friends with or people in our family or whatever. We go to the funeral and we see a lifeless body there. But no matter how much that you cry out to that person, no matter how much you try to, to shake them awake, no matter what words that you say, they still lie there and they're still dead and they are unresponsive and they will remain unresponsive. And Paul is likening the, the previous life in which we lived to that necros dead. This is where we were. We were spiritually dead in the sphere or in the realm of our trespasses and sins. It wasn't just that we were living in life and we were committing trespasses, which means to fall or to slip, or that we were just committing sins, which means to miss the mark. It's like we dwelt in that sphere of trespasses and sins. This is where we dwelt in the realm of wickedness and evil, under its influence, under its dominion, as the Apostle Paul says separated from God, under the wrath of God, and were lifeless to the things of God. He uses that word, necros. 
This word was actually used metaphorically in Greek literature and philosophy to refer to those who are morally and spiritually deficient. That's a great way to describe people in their natural state. Because people in their natural state are enemies of God, separated from God, excluded from the life of God, under the wrath of God, unable to submit themselves to the law of God. All of those things we find from the scripture. Our lives were characterized by being in that sphere of trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In that particular sphere in which we all dwelt, we were walking according to the course of this world. And then he elaborates further. You were walking according not just to the course of this world, but according to the prince in the, of the power of the air. You're walking after the liking of Satan. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing how much that that word gets thrown around a lot. You know, talking about, you know, satanic this. This is satanic or that's satanic. Anything that is anti-God is satanic. Anything that is against the law of God or the character of God or the nature of God is all satanic. And that is what our lives were characterized as. Walking after the satanic influence of the prince in the power of the air. Now what does that look like? Well, you think of, you think of Satan himself as the epitome of evil. You think Satan is, when we understand Satan and what he does, he's, he's constantly in rebellion. And we are walking according to that pattern in constant rebellion. Everything that we did only built up for us even greater wrath for the day of wrath. That was... That was our lives. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. It doesn't have to be at all. And this is something that we need to understand. It does not have to be that we are actually trying to, to actually worship Satan or any of those things in order to walk according to his pattern. Or to be under his influence. When sin is dominating our lives and we are dwelling in the sphere of trespasses and sins, we are walking exactly after Him. We are walking according to His pattern, according to His influence. It's like 1 Corinthians 4, 4 says that, that, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's how, that's how our lives were characterized as. Walking according to the pattern of Satan. Under his influence. And we all lived there. All of us lived there. There is not one person that could ever say, that wasn't me. Because you walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. And the things that we did only demonstrated our rebellion. 
uh, demonstrated our hearts that just defied everything of the things of God. You know, we have this very light view of sin and we have this very light view of our previous life. We were dominated under it. Dominated under trespasses and sins. One writer says that that was the sphere of our existence apart from God. He goes on to say this. He does not become a liar when he tells a lie. Because he's already a liar. He doesn't become, a person doesn't become a thief when they steal because they're already a thief. He doesn't become an adulterer when he actually performs the act because he's already one. Because that is the sphere in which we lived. Dominated under the influence of sin and trespasses. And again, we all live there. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Do you remember what you were like beforehand? Do you remember the sin that you indulged in beforehand? Well, here's something just to think about. We struggle with sin even now. And when we struggle with sin, I mean, that's exactly what we're doing. We're struggling. We're struggling not to do it. We're struggling to overcome it. Well, in the previous life before our conversion, we freely indulged in that without any second thought. And we delighted in doing it. It's only when we come to understand the holiness of God and who we are in regards to a holy God that we are seeking to overcome it by the power of the Spirit. Beforehand, wouldn't have given it a second thought. We all live there. And the lust of our flesh, indulging whatever desires that we had, whatever desires that we wanted. That's where we were. By nature, children of wrath, under the wrath of God. We have to understand this, that even though there's the understanding that that those who are in Christ were chosen before the foundation of the world, there was that time in which before your conversion before you were regenerated, that the life that you were beforehand, you lived in your natural state. You were an unbeliever. You were an enemy of God, and God's wrath was upon you. We were, by nature, by our very nature, the nature in which we are born with, the inherited sin from Adam, the moment we take our first breath, By nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. That's universal. This is where we all were. This is where we dwelt. This is where we delighted to be. And absolutely unresponsive to the things of God. I think it was R.C. Sproul who had said, What can a dead man do but stink? And rot. I can do nothing. But in light of all of those things, in light of the former lives in which we all lived, and all the desires in which we indulged in, then we read these amazing words, these emphatic words, these gloriously beautiful words 
but God. This is the life in which we had, the life in which we lived. Alienated, separated, under the wrath of God. And the one who initiates this was not us. Again, what can a dead man do? But God. God initiated this. God intervened. On the road to destruction, the Heavenly Father, who is rich in mercy, He sweeps us up. And He gives us a new road. He gives us a new way to go. That doesn't lead to destruction. It leads to eternal life with Him. But God being rich in mercy. His mercy is never exhausted. It never runs out. Because of His great love. With which He loved us. This is why He did it. When you go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and you read of those passages of being chosen in Him. At the end of verse 4, leading into verse 5, it says, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. And we read here, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love, with which He loved us. An unfathomable love. A love that we cannot comprehend. Because it's too wide, it's too high. It's too great to understand. But out of that unfathomable love, and the riches of His mercy, He intervenes. If you are in Christ, it is because God has personally intervened in your life. Instead of allowing you to endure destruction and only continue in your life to keep building up wrath for the day of wrath, He, he intervenes. This is the psalmist says, he, he brought me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock and He established my goings. That's what God did. That's what the Son of God did. Out of His great love. And the great love, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what Paul says in Romans. Even when we were in rebellion. He made us alive together with Christ. He resurrected us. He made us alive to the things of God. Enabling us to come. And He did it by the Holy Spirit of God. Who gave us a new mind. And a new heart. And a new will. Who now dwells within us. 
who changed the, the entirety of the disposition of our souls and the destination in which we were going. He made us alive. He regenerated us. He caused us to be born again. He caused us to be born from above. Naturally, we are sinners because we have, we have inherited sin. But then to be born of the Spirit of God, the one who only has righteousness and holiness, the one who is absolutely perfect, now our lives are patterned after Him. Created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's what the Apostle also says back in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, verse 20, after he expresses what the unbelieving were like, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. When God created man, He created man upright. He created man perfect until, as the writer Ecclesiastes says, until man sought out other devices. And the image of God in which man was created was marred when man was in rebellion. Upon Adam's rebellion and Eve's rebellion, the image of God in which we were created in righteousness and holiness was marred. But as a result of the Spirit of God now coming into our lives and giving us a, a, heart, of, a heart of flesh after taking out our heart of stone, the image of God is now being restored. It's being recreated in righteousness and holiness. And again, this was all done by His great love. Not out of anything else, and the Apostle makes it very clear that it was nothing else but His great love. And, and this is the reason He made us alive. It was by grace you have been saved. But not only did He make us alive, that we can respond to the calling of the Gospel, that we can cast our faith upon Him, which we'll get into that in just a moment, but he goes on to express some of these amazing words in which it's very difficult to even understand. He says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We know that when Christ was resurrected and he ascended to the Father, that he received that exaltation, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's gradually making his enemies a footstool for his feet. Well, Paul says... That He raised us up with Him. The same power that raised Christ is the same power that is giving us this, this great blessing of spiritual resurrection by the Holy Spirit of God. And that we're seated with Him in the heavenly places. There's a variety of opinions on this as to what exactly does it mean. Because this is in, you know, this is in a future that He's speaking of here. It's like this has already happened. In the sphere in which God dwells, that we are seated with Him. We are con constantly united to our Lord Jesus Christ in His exaltation, in His exalted state in which He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Constantly united to Him because of the Spirit of God who now resides with us. Because the Spirit of God is never separate from the, the Son. 
and never separate from the Father. And so as a result of Him being in us and dwelling with us, we are always united to Christ in His exalted state. Never will that cease. <clears throat> we are united to Him always. And even, even more so, as Christ is ruling and reigning from heaven, and we are here on the earth, we are united to Him. My personal understanding of the book of Revelation, for example, is that the saints who are departed from here, who go home to be with the Lord, are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places, ruling and reigning as Christ is reigning in that intermediate state. That our loved ones that have died and have gone home to be with the Lord are ruling and reigning with Christ Jesus as He is seated on His throne. When you read Revelation chapter 20, and you read... And I saw thrones, and those that sat on them, and crowns were given to them, and they came to life, and they rule, and they reign with Christ. That language of I saw thrones is used over 40 times in the book of Revelation and always refers to a heavenly scene. And John even says, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the testimony of Christ. So those that he's seeing are in the intermediate state before they have received the full redemption of their bodies. And what are they doing? They are ruling and reigning with Christ Jesus even now. We are united to Him while we are here. And then when we leave this world, we go to be with Him in the heavenly places. It's not our final state. But in the ages to come, He says, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Even in the, the age to come, in which we understand the age to come is, is the eternal state. This is the intermediate state right now. You know, it's interesting, our thoughts of heaven. I think it was Doug Wilson who was talking about how, you know, we think of heaven and we think of heaven as some floaty place. We're going to go sit on a cloud or whatever. Well, one, that's not what heaven's like. But we forget sometimes, too, that even in the, in the sphere in which we go to dwell with the Lord in this intermediate state, that, is, that still is not the final state in which we will dwell for eternity. We forget that this world will be purged and cleansed and receive it's redemption, as we read of in Romans 8, or we read of in 2 Peter 3. And that what was lost in the time of Adam and Eve will be restored to an even greater extent. And we will dwell here with our Lord. And in the time in which we dwell here, in the final state, in the eternal state, His kindness toward us and the surpassing riches of His grace will never cease throughout all eternity. Again, it will never be exhausted because He is rich in mercy. And He's going to show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. 
You know, the amazing thing to consider is, is us being transgressors of the law of God and the things that we have received as a result of Christ Jesus. If you commit some, some type of a, a crime here, what happens? You've got to go and you've got to pay your fine or you've got to do your time or whatever the case is, and then you may be able to live your life thereafter, but you still had to deal with the things that, that you had done previously. And depending if you had hurt someone or you had accidentally killed someone or whatever it is, that the pain in which that family is experienced is still with them and it's still toward you. And if you have wronged someone, they may say, well, yes, I forgive you. And then they very well may be able to, to put it behind them in the sense of not holding it to your charge but there's still that in their minds of what had happened previously. But with God, this is different. With God, when He forgives you in Christ, that this is, this is like it never happened. Because not one ounce of His love or one ounce of His grace or one ounce of His kindness is withheld from you based on the life that you lived beforehand. Because now you are seen as perfect because of the Lord Jesus Christ. As if you had never done it. In that kindness, in that grace that He has lavished upon you will never cease even in the age to come. And why is that? Well, one, your salvation was never dependent upon you to begin with. That's why He can do this. That's why He delights in doing this. Because it was never dependent upon you. And that's what he says. For by grace, he repeats it again. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The gift of God that you have received did not originate with you. It came from him. And that gift that he has given to you. Out of his grace was the faith to call upon Christ. Faith is the gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. That's what he's saying. It's not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. You know, in Jeremiah, the Lord tells him, Let not a man boast in his riches, but let him boast in this that he knows me. Why can't a man boast in his riches or boast in the things that he has done in this world or boast in the fact that he has chosen to come to Christ because it was never done by him? He didn't enable himself to be able to come. God did. God intervened. God initiated it. God gifted the, the faith to believe. Otherwise, we would never believe. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. And he cannot discern them. Because they are spiritually appraised. There are no works that were ever done. In which God decided. 
I'm going to have grace upon you because of just how great that you are. Or how good that you are. He says, I'm going to lavish my grace upon you because I have chosen to do so. Because I have chosen to make you the object of my love. And I have chosen you to be the recipient of the grace and and salvation in which the Son of God has brought about. Never is it done out of any good works. Because faith was the gift. It never originated with us. In regards to our salvation, we can't claim anything. We can't take credit for any of it. It was done by God on your behalf out of His great love with which He loved you. Now, interestingly, God doesn't just do this initial work, but throughout our lives, God works within us to produce in us good works, whereas before we didn't have them. He says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. One writer says this, No good works can produce salvation, but many good works are produced by salvation. So there were never any good works that you could have done to have earned your salvation, but after the Lord has saved you, after He has justified you, after the Spirit of God has sanctified you, that the Spirit of God now works within you. And in this you take part in. This part you do which is the good works that are performed thereafter, not to gain salvation, but because of your salvation. This is the Spirit of God conforming us to the image of Christ, the Spirit of God who works within our minds and hearts and our will in order to to have us to walk in obedience to the Lord, to demonstrate His glory and His honor, because we are His workmanship. And God has prepared these good works for us to walk in that we would magnify Him in doing so. Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God has prepared these good works in order that we would walk in them. And that as we walk in them, we are walking worthy of our calling. We are walking worthy of Christ. And that we are magnifying the great grace and the riches of His mercy. Those are being manifest in our life. God has ordained that that we live lives that bring honor and glory to Him. And what He has prepared, we walk in. And that is the only part in all of that that we have anything to do with. I will say this is one has, has said, one theologian said that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that required it. That's the only part you take, you take in in the, in the first part of all of that. You provided the sin. Everything else God did. Sending the Son of God to live for you, to die for you, 
in order that we could be the recipients of the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in him. And so to now live a life that is honoring to the Lord, that is pleasing to him, that is glorifying to him, is a small price to pay in light of everything that he has done. It is a small thing to put my self-centeredness in check or my selfishness in check or my pride or my hurt or my anger or my bitterness to put it all in check in light of everything that he has done. What more does God have to do to prove to us how much that he loves us? The greatest act that God ever did was to send the Son of God into the world to give his life on behalf of vile sinners. I can't understand that love. It's too big for me. But I'm so thankful for it. Because without it, there would be no hope. We would have nothing to look forward to except the wrath of God, which we rightly deserve. But out of the riches of His grace, He said, No further. Now, you're coming this way. He did it for no other reason than to show what great love that he has for those who are in Christ. There is nothing greater than that. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 37 he says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's all grounded in what he said previously in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That is the surpassing greatness of our God. That there is nothing, nothing in existence in this world that will ever separate us from the love of God nor any created thing. You can put whatever you want to in that category. There is nothing that is on this earth that will ever separate us from the love of God. The problem that we have is oftentimes we take our minds off of the love of God and then we feel like He doesn't. But he has demonstrated to us, dear friends, what great love he has 
what that great love did and how that great love is remaining with us and will remain with us into eternity. And so he says that we are to walk in these good works in which God has prepared beforehand. That we delight in Him, delight in His salvation, delight in obeying. He says in Colossians chapter 3, beginning of verse 1, this is a little lengthy, but just listen to the things that He's saying and ask yourself, is this too much of a price to pay in light of what God has done? Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to impurity, immorality, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised or and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you also, you, all, you also should, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. That is but a small price to pay. In light of the surpassing greatness of His of His kindness and love that He's lavished on us in Christ Jesus. You know, there are things in this world that can take our minds off of these truths, that can cause disruptions in our walk with Christ, that can distract us. And that's why it is necessary for the people of God to always go back to where we came from. And that's what the psalmist did. And... The psalmists are always expressing their, their hurt or whatever it is to the Lord, but they always come back to what they know to be true of Him. One of my favorite psalms, and I know I've said it before, 
One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 13. Because in my time in which I feel these things, I have to do this very thing. This is the psalm of David. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. In light of whatever trial David was going through, that's... The implication is it seemed to be a long one. That even though he was crying out to the Lord, he says, I'm still going to rejoice in you because you have dealt bountifully with me. Those are the things we have to go back to is the Lord has dealt bountifully with us. And the Lord has been good to us. And the Lord has lavished on us such riches of his blessings. In Christ Jesus. That's why we have to be reminded of the gospel. We have to be reminded of the good news of what Christ has done. What God has done. And it was always an amazing thing to me reading Romans. Because Paul opens up his epistle and he's, he's saying to the church at Rome. To the saints who are at Rome. And then as you work your way through the first chapter he says basically I can't wait to get there and, and to see you and to preach the gospel to you. And you think, it's like, they're already converted. What's he preaching the gospel to them for? Because that's the hope of our salvation is the gospel. That's what we need to be reflecting upon. To be reminded of the goodness of God towards us. In light of our present circumstances or our future circumstances, God has been good. That's where Nahum says that the Lord is good. A refuge in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Let us indeed be reminded, dear friends, of what God has done for you and what love God has for you and how kind and gracious he's been to you. That in your time of trouble and in your time of need, go back and read these things and let your heart be joyful in the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Father, how amazing you are. How gracious that you are. What love that you have. A love that is too great for us. How can we know it? We'll never fully understand. Never will we exhaust any part or aspect of your being or your nature. But I pray that all of us would just stand in amazement as we reflect upon your character and your nature towards us. The kindness that you have shown us and the goodness that you have shown to us. Oh, Father, so many things in this world distract us and hinder us. Help us by the Spirit of God to focus our eyes back upon Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. 
let us recognize that it is not at all too big of a thing to walk in obedience to you, to delight in you, to find all of our peace and hope in you, and to look forward to the time in which we will be standing in your presence because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do a mighty work within us and help each one of us daily that we don't stumble and we don't fall. Oh, Father, be glorified in your people. And may we ever seek your face and ever be reminded of what you have done for us. We love you because you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children say, Amen. Thank you for your attention, and you are dismissed.